It's Thursday, February 1st, 2024 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And you might notice some audio differences today. I'm fleeing the normal recording studio. I cannot get away from incessant and, well, it's a little bit of banging, but the construction around here and right to the next to me, well, rather than me talking about it now, as it's abated some, let me play you this section of tape that I recorded a couple of hours ago, just so you get a flavor of what's going on in GIST World Headquarters. Here's that. From Peachfish Productions, it's drilling next door months and months of drilling do you want to listen to a podcast that sounds like this i don't would have to be pretty great content to overcome the drilling next door you know what i do when i record the show is i have this little tiny mini fridge it holds four cans of beverage and i unplug it because there is a slight hum that's discernible in the background. I guess with this drilling, I won't have to unplug the mini fridge. Right now, my wife, the director of special projects for Peach Fish Production has walked into the studio. Probably you heard, but maybe you didn't. She reached into a, a bowl that I have gum and you could hear the clinkling, or you could if there weren't this earth shattering noise inches from my face. So now I can safely say that that noise, that pounding is gone, but there's still little moments of disruptive sonic interference. I guess what I would have talked about today was that horrible and crazed video of the 32-year-old Pennsylvania man who beheaded his father and then went to YouTube to tell the world why. I actually watched the whole 14-minute video. Your question for me might be, why, Mike? And I think it was because of the paucity of information in the write-ups of it. They would use a phrase or two, but I wanted to get the full flavor of the insanity. And here's the thing. It's not, it's of course disturbing. It's not batshit insane. It's extremely insane, but it is so predictably insane. It's insane as if it went through the insanity plus Tucker Carlson filter. The things that he complains about are exactly and to the phrase what Tucker Carlson talks about on his show most nights. Okay, there was a little bit extra, but he did talk about the column, the fifth column of illegal immigrants. He doesn't want to die in the Russian winter in the war in Ukraine. Tucker's always using those evocative phrases. The traitorous Biden regime. Then he does go on to declare himself president of the United States, and he gives some specific advice to postal workers how they could avoid the upcoming purge. There was one bit of insanity that wasn't exactly pulled from the Tucker playbook. He said that uh, he would have been president already, but for the intervention of two of the candidates in 20. 20. And it was surprising for me. This is not a joke, though it is also not sane. John Hickenlooper and John Kasich, those were the two candidates that he shouted out and that were somehow evoked and, uh, I don't know, stood in the way of this man who is obviously very disturbed, a very disturbed murderer, a very disturbed 
insane murderer, not the Messiah. He does say at one point, I'm not saying I'm the Messiah. I think it was clearly implying he was the Messiah, but that's okay. I watched it. You don't have to. Maybe there is something about the insanity-inducing pounding of construction next door that drove me to literally insanity-filled content. On the show today, and it'll all sound so much better than this, we are doing a full show interview with Lupe Lupin, who I know as someone who tweets at NYC Southpaw. So he's a progressive tweeter. He's a lawyer. And now he's the co-author of a new book called The Truth, Progressives, Centrists, and the Future of the Democratic Party. It pairs well with yesterday's conversation with Josh Green, who wrote about a lot of the same characters. And it pairs well with a Ryan Grimm book called The Squad about the squad that we did a couple of weeks ago. So now that these three books are done and processed, and I feel like I got to know the Democratic Socialists of America, adjacent members of our Congress, I think we can move on. But I give you the last in our trio of Get to Know the Left. This is Lupe Lupin, author of The Truth, Progressive Centrists and the Future of the Democratic Party. Lupe Lupin is a name well known to me, or at least it has been since 2018. I know him from his Twitter, well, formerly Twitter, now X, handle NYC Southpaw. He's a lawyer. He provides uh, consistently caustic leftist takes, but also, you know, he understands the law. And I think it was in 2018 that he wrote an article for Yahoo and he said, you know what? I'm going to come out. I'm going to give my real name. And he told everyone his real name was Lupe Lupin and people still didn't believe him, but it's all true. He's here to talk (laughs) about his new book called The Truce, Progressive Centrists and the Future of the Democratic Party. Lupe, welcome to The Gist. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. I have read and interviewed a couple books in a very similar vein to yours. Um, Ryan Grimm was on the show and uh, the book, The Rebels, we talked to author Josh Green on the show. Mm -hmm. And so I was reading your book for what is new. There seem to be a couple of big set pieces. One is, tell me about this. I think this is the first that it's been reported from the Esther Cooper Smith ballroom, Barack Obama addressing the incoming freshman class of a couple of years ago. This is all your scoop. That's right. So people knew about this event at the, at the time in 2019, right after this is so this is the middle of the Trump administration, the first midterm elections, the Democrats sweep back to power in the house. Um, and, as they're they're getting sort of settled in their offices in the beginning of 2019, the uh, Nancy Pelosi actually organizes an event for them at the house of a donor, sort of Calorama Mansion, uh, where uh, Barack Obama comes to speak to them, and they have a behind closed doors session to talk about the future of the party, what these young lawmakers and it was just the freshmen, the the new legislators who were coming to the house, what they're going to do. Uh, and how they how they can sort of guide the trajectory of of the their own political careers and the party going forward. Uh, so it was known at the time that that had happened, and I think a few details of the event uh, were reported, but no one knew actually what Obama had said in any detail. And we were able to obtain his remarks, and his talk there I think is revealing in that he's talking to the youngest lawmakers, the people who are most in touch with the districts, and trying to think through this problem for them. 
trying to work with them and encourage them to reach out to young people, reach out to progressives and bring them into the fold of the party. Um, and I think we also report that some of the most progressive members didn't think he did a really great job in that speech. They're, they're, uh, they were not totally pleased with Obama's, you know, Obama's presidency, and they weren't totally pleased with his prescriptions for the party uh, going forward. So I, I think it shows, it's a sort of our first set piece that shows you have progressives, you have this desire to unify the party, and you have centrists. And I think Obama probably was very progressive early in his career, but sort of counts as a centrist as he as he went through his presidency. Um, and the the need for them to come together is the sort of central question of the Democratic Party and whether it's able to to uh, wield its majoritarian position and take power, or whether it faces defeats like we like we saw in twenty sixteen. So I keep saying we because I wrote this book with my colleague Hunter Walker. Yes, uh, and Hunter Walker's last book was The Breach, which was about January 6th, and he was right there and provided a lot of footage or reported, I think, for Rolling Stone at the time. Um, so mm -hmm. to that point, you write, a source who worked with the squad said the group of progressive freshmen viewed the session with Obama as a chastising. According to the source, squad members who were able to attend were excited to see Obama. They left the room feeling let down by Obama is uh, let down by Obama's remarks, much as they did with his time in office. Well, you're right. Obama is a centrist. He's not going to tell progressives to be more to the left, much more to the left than he is. And I know that's reductive, but he also says, don't be impatient. He also says, you have to keep in mind who you're campaigning for. Why would they expect mm -hmm. Obama to say something differently? I mean, this worked for him. And in fact, I would go further as to say his appeal uh, to young people was not really on policy grounds. It was on personality grounds. I think that's that's a fair point. I, I think that it was, you know, his early on anti-war stances are also were a big part of his campaign in 2008. Um, but I, I, you know, I take the, the, the squad members uh, thoughts about Obama as related to us by our source to be, you know, also, a this sort of yearning for a different kind of Obama presidency that that we didn't get that there was the the more progressive and ideological possibility early on of the kind of hope and change movement and that that didn't I think a lot of progressives would say that didn't materialize um, as much as they hoped it would and Obama's speech to this group of young lawmakers is fundamentally a pragmatic speech how do you appeal to young people how do you get them engaged how do you at the same time maintain you know, a, a political career and not, you know, I, I think he says at one point, I don't want anyone to go out and light themselves on fire just to do, you know, you have to get reelected. We need you to stay in power and we need you to chart a course um, that is not self-sacrificing, but one that's, that's, um, you know, directed toward uh, bringing the country to a better place. Uh, and self-sacrificing may be the wrong, the wrong term, not suicidal. Uh, and so that, 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 tension, I think, you know, is sometimes a disappointing one of, of pragmatism telling people to temper their, their ideals and temper their, uh, the ability to, to make real radical structural change. Yeah. So I'll read from the book. Um, 
Obama framed the story as an example of how Democrats need to find a balance between progressivism and pragmatism. In his case, he was talking about how don't ask, don't tell eventually won the long game. And he said, Mm -hmm. I just want to make sure that you heard the point. The key point is you have to be principled. That doesn't mean you have to be absolutist. That doesn't mean you have to be impatient. That doesn't mean you have to be sanctimonious with your fellow Democrats. All right. So I will say I agree with Obama. I think his theory of politics is right. I understand it's not the experience of AOC, Presley, a few of the other members of the squad from their very, very overwhelmingly left-leaning districts. But you tell me why, not just to the ears of progressives, but in reality, Obama got it wrong. Because I think, I think actually he gets it mostly right, even if a few or maybe more than a few progressive members of Congress don't want to hear it. I I I um I, I think maybe I I'm not the best representative to uh to to read out the indictment of Barack Obama. I have I also have a lot of admiration for how he conducts his politics, and I think you can't deny that Obama has been an effective politician, both in office and out of office. And this is what the book is concerned with. You see him focus really, in a really determined and I think pragmatic way, on sort of stitching together this divide in the party between progressives and centrists that we saw emerge in the 2016 primary with Bernie Sanders on one side and Hillary Clinton on the other. And, you know, the 2020 primary, I think not entirely because of Obama, but in part because of some of his interventions didn't play out that way. You saw the Democratic Party coalesce behind Biden as a candidate fairly early on. And you saw the biden campaign actively and obama had something to do with this reach out to the sanders campaign include them on these unity these unity commissions that sort of shaped the agenda and forged a lot of relationships that carry through into the biden white house and the, the more progressive congress and that's the story of the first two years of the the biden uh term is that the the biden white house in a way is more closely connected to the progressives in Congress than to what we term the radical centrists, the sort of cinemas and mansions. And it's the progressives are also its its more reliable allies. And they get a lot of legislation passed with that arrangement of democratic politics. So I think if you look at Obama's record, you have to say he is a very effective politician. He's someone who thinks a lot about these things, thinks deeply, and, and who uses his influence um, as we, as far as we can tell in a wise and pragmatic way. Um, and you know, you asked me to sort of state the case against him. And I think the progressive case against him is that he's also someone who is extremely inspiring. He's personally an inspiring leader and he is able to articulate progressive goals and progressive feelings extremely well, but his pragmatism doesn't, you know, leads him to temper those goals and to make compromises that he sees as pragmatic and necessary, but that, you know, his voters would rather see him, you know, just out there fighting, fighting and fighting and fighting rather than making a compromise. In his view, you've got a, a you know, chart a course that's, that, that is going to lead you to your goal and not simply fight for the sake of fighting. So tell me, uh, put into your own words or pull from the reporting in your book, the case that the progressive theory of politics is superior. 
how to get things done in our American political system. I mean, that that idea is shot through the book. Let's say well, well, the the book the book chronicles many people in the Progressive Party. We sure. get into New York politics. There's a lot about members of the Squad, a lot about Bernie Sanders, and they have a critique of not just the centrists, as exemplified by Mansion and Cinema, who might be something mm-hmm. way to the right of centrists. They have a theory of incrementalism, of not swinging for the fences, of not being big or bold or radical enough. They have a theory that the people are really behind this. So I'm I follow politics. I'm like, okay, there's a theory. Let's see when it comes into play, if that theory is borne out. I find that more often than not, it is not borne out. And more often than not, the progressive theory of how to get political change uh, is lacking when compared to the more pragmatic approach of you got to get people on board who even you don't agree with. But, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you could, from your reporting, poke holes in my general assessment of how politics actually gets done in the United States. I think there's a a fair point that that is absolutely how politics gets done in the United States. And I think that the progressive case is uh, dependent on making structural reforms to the system, that there's a real desire for more, you know, comprehensive change on any number of issues, right? Progressives. And I think a lot of a lot of people in politics would love to see comprehensive immigration reform that takes the issue from this sort of high heat polarizing racially cathected problem into something more pragmatic progressives i don't think are super you know pie in the sky about immigration they want the visa system to work well they want people to be able to legally immigrate to the united states and not have to face 20 year waits um and that requires staffing the agencies and funding them and you know spending money to get the immigration system working and those sorts of things run into the brick wall of the filibuster in the in congress because republicans to be frank want the issue they prefer to run on immigration they like immigration to remain a uh, seemingly unsolvable problem and then to cast all these aspersions on immigrants it's really hard to do any sort of progressive reform like that or to do a progressive reform in the in the healthcare space to do a medicare for all you might have majority support out in the country but it's never going to get through the senate i i believe a progressive would would tell you that if you get these things done people were going to experience change in their lives you know straight away i was actually listening to a, an interview with pramila jayapal this morning she talked to the new yorker and she was talking about you know how dividing the infrastructure bill from the the build back better sort of package of the build back better agenda that that Biden tried to get passed was something she'd argued against because she said the people need to experience change in their lives and if you pass something like childcare you know government support to hire um to 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 hire or participate in a childcare program that changes someone's life you know as soon as it's implemented whereas mm-hmm. if you pass a government program to build a road if you know it may change some people's experience in a way that you hope they notice but for folks who don't have a job or don't have a house it building that infrastructure isn't going to show them um that that the 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 progressives and the u.s government are working on their behalf and that i i think is a powerful point 
So a couple of points. One, build back better and those hurdles, th- those were in filibuster induced. Those were a 50-50 Senate where you just needed cinema and mansion on board and the Democrats couldn't get them. And once they could, then they got the uh, proposals passed. Filibuster did thwart the uh, progressive agenda elsewhere. You're right. But I'm thinking about that theory. It seems what Jayapal was articulating really helped people materially in their lives. They'll appreciate it. But there seems to be a lot of counter evidence to that right now. I mean, yeah, I know Joe Biden's chip factory is not rolling along, but guess what? He did negotiate drug prices lower. And guess what? He did, you know, cap. He did deliver $35. He is delivering $35 insulin. Seems to be getting no credit for it. So it does seem to me that I would have agreed with uh, Jayapal's ideas before they were passed. But then having seen all these government measures passed and the government not getting credit for the measures, I wonder how true that is. It's a fair point. And I think I think there's the, the other piece of the puzzle here that uh, obviously most, most folks are very familiar with is that we have a, a media environment that is, um, I don't think, structured the way that progressives would, would exactly like. There's a huge amount of um, interest in sort of conservative news sources. There's a huge amount of money that goes to conservative news sources if you have a bad story about immigration you know it's going to get a lot of clicks and a lot of views and you know it's going to get picked up on fox news and if you have a good story about people not paying as much for their insulin anymore you know you might get in the back pages of the new york times but you're not going to be seeing that uh splashed across tabloid covers or um you know talked about on fox news in the primetime hour and so it is more difficult for a democratic administration that has accomplishments to get them in front of people and and make them you know, aware of where this is coming from and why they're seeing this change in their lives. Uh, with that said, I, you know, I, I do think there's some hope that people will get to, will come to appreciate these, these programs as they continue. But I, I agree with you. I mean, the, the, a lot of progressive legislation was passed and the president remains very unpopular. So there, you have to reckon with that. The truce is, you mentioned Camilla Jayapal, that is, that comes from her, right? That was her phrase. She was the one who introduced the idea of the truce. She mentioned it. Uh, I think. <laughs> I think that's. Uh, yeah, she. She's. Uh, I'm happy to give her credit for it. We we went through several different titles over the course of thinking through this book, and we thought it was the best encapsulation of what we were talking about. Um, that there was this unification of the party that it seems, uh, as you're pointing out, very fragile and tenuous and, you know, open to, to being ruptured at any point. Uh, but that did manage to hold together and put a Democrat in the white house and Democrats in Congress and to put Trump out of office after his first term, which is a significant accomplishment and one that I think deserves to be studied um and thought about and whether and and you know something we've been wrestling with as we've been working on the rollout of this book and trying to think of pieces we can write it's like can it be replicated are the challenges of 2024 the same as 2020 they're really they're different and you know trump obviously isn't in office and the party with the with what's going on in the world right now the party seems like it's sort of in this place where it might split apart again so what was the truce between what factions and what were the terms of the truce that got at least, uh, I would say, a significant portion of the progressive agenda passed into law? The easiest way to think about it 
is between uh, sort of the Bernie Sanders himself and the people who aligned themselves with Bernie Sanders in 2016 and the early parts of 2020 on one side and the, um, you know, the successors of Obama and Clinton who represent sort of more, a more mainstream vision of the Democrats uh, on the other side. And that the, what happened over the course of the 2020 primary, we argue is that you saw a really sort of, surprising and sudden consolidation among the centrists behind Joe Biden that we think Obama had a lot to do with. Uh, after after he gained some momentum in South Carolina, you see all these folks uh, dropping line behind him, dropping out of the race and endorsing Joe Biden. And then once Joe Biden had a commanding position in the primary, uh, you see him reach out to Bernie Sanders and try to do his best to fold Bernie Sanders' campaign into his own to create these unity commissions I talked about earlier, which sort of wrote the the party platform for him and, you know, produced this, this idea of Build Back Better, which eventually became the leg- legislation called Build Back Better and also forged a bunch of relationships between people who would be in Congress in the next term and people who would be in the, in the White House. And those relationships and that work, we think, you know, contributed to passing a real raft of progressive legislation in the first two years of his term. We're talking with Lupe Lupin, author of the newly released book, The Truth, Progressives, Centrists, and the Future of the Democratic Party. And we'll be back in a moment to pick up our conversation. Stay tuned. We are back with Lupe Lupin. We're talking about the truth, progressive, centrist, and the future of the Democratic Party. And here now, in a much nicer sounding way, is the continuation of that conversation. So I want to ask you a question about extending anonymity to sources. I quoted earlier the person with the uh, critique of Obama a source who worked with the squad. I don't know. That could be anyone. She had a, uh, if we're talking about one of AOC's staffers, some of whom are quoted on the record, uh, many of them either fired or left the campaign after six months after a yeah, particularly contentious era. You talk about uh, Corbin, who uh, talks about his addiction to opioids during that time. Later on, we're talking about the Biden campaign. Uh, I'll read some of this for my listeners. Worse, the new headquarters were boring. One staffer described walking into the building and thinking about the stale corporate space was exactly what the online left might have imagined for a stuff suit like Biden. When I got there, someone told me that the Biden campaign has the office that Twitter thinks the Biden campaign has, the staffer said. It was just drab. Later on, anonymity is extended to, there was another dire omen. On caucus night, the campaign ordered Mexican. When they saw District Taco in the office, one campaign operative said people thought it was going bad. It was literally one of the most depressing nights of my life. The operative continued, why extend anonymity for people to criticize the catering at a campaign staff event? I think the... uh it's always tough talking about about sourcing decisions because you don't want to say more than you've said in the in the uh, in the written work but i think no you wouldn't want to wouldn't want to expose them right um and I, I think you know you're the the 
the the painting of a picture of the Biden campaign in those early days we thought was important to explain how sort of ramshackle the the operation was to begin with, how the staffers who were working there felt a little bit cursed in the early days of the Biden campaign. They didn't have the sense of this juggernaut that was going to sweep to the White House once the plan was fully executed. Um, and we thought that was an important story to bring. And, you know, when you do use an anonymous source, uh, you are asking the reader to trust you, that your judgment that the, the source has the authority to speak on the subject they're speaking about, and that the subject they're speaking about is important enough. And, you know, I, I think you can, you can take some of what what we did there is a little bit lighthearted, but I think it makes a serious point, which is the the Biden operation early on was didn't have this feeling of the future president. It was very much on, you know, on a shoestring like any other campaign. And they managed to put together a a winning campaign from that beginning. And that to me is an important data point that it wasn't, you know, I, I think often we think about presidents and, and successful politicians as being these commanding figures all through all the way throughout who have the right strategy and the right vision um coming forward and you in, uh, and i am sort of i want to hasten to add that we confirmed all those details uh i believe on the record with greg schultz the campaign manager uh who speaks later in that chapter and well, not, not all the details. This person alleged that the water in the office wasn't potable. They didn't pay for a water cooler. And Greg Schultz dismissed the co- complaint about the water out of hand. I drank the water every single day. It was fine. I have to tell you, as I was reading that, I was like, you know, without knowing who this staffer was, and staffer can mean anything, right? Technically, volunteers or staffer it could just be anyone who was there for three weeks and never liked Biden to begin with. Or I guess it could be an important person who we should pay attention to. There are a lot, a lot of anonymous sources. I normally, I find it very hard as a news reader to be able to fully evaluate the legitimacy of a complaint if I don't know who the source is, if I don't know what their motivations or what their status might be. And there was a lot of anonymity for what I thought of as backbiting against centrists or moderates in this book. Well, you know, I, I hear your criticism and I think all I can do is assure you that wasn't our intention in, um, in, in, and I, 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 I think the, what, what you're seeing there is, is a, an effect of trying to understand details about a campaign for people who are currently in power. Um, so Biden is the president, Kamala Harris is the vice president. Um, it is very difficult to get folks on the record to speak about them at all. We, uh, you know, we spent weeks and weeks with Harris's team working to try to get someone on the record to say positive things about her. Um, and that was a challenge <laughs> we didn't really meet. The The background quotes around a president are something, you know, we tried to break through. We obviously prefer to put everyone on the record and use their name. And we tried that with every everyone we spoke with. Uh, but sometimes, you know, you do the best that you can to present the picture of what's really happening. And uh, I wouldn't it tried not to put gratuitous information in, but we thought that there were important, important, it was important to paint a picture of the Biden campaign in those early days. So the Harris quote, and the Guardian has excerpted this, and the quote from the anonymous staffer, but in this case, 
uh, the person is described as a senior staffer is the headline of this piece. This person should not be president. Kamala Harris takes hit in book on Biden. I read the chapter, but why don't you tell the audience what the complaint of her staff was? Why were senior members of her staff coming to the conclusion that she's not fit for the presidency? And I want to underline, these are people who signed on to her campaign who were, um, you know, at, at least at one point supportive of mm-hmm. Kamala Harris to be, um, to become the president and who through the course of their experience in that campaign uh, came to the opposite conclusion. Uh, and there, there's, there's no doubt that that person would be described as a disgruntled staffer. Right. But their, their critique was not about personal stuff. It was about the way the campaign lacked direction and the, uh, the, the, the difficulty in framing a principled position, um, that the campaign could stick to. And that is something that we saw in her campaign and her in the vice president's office and the people with the people we talked to and we thought it was important to report. How many members of a campaign staff would be defined as a senior staffer approximately? I think it would depend on the campaign, but you can, yeah, we're not talking about volunteers or interns here, I promise you. Okay. Um, last question. Do you think, this is your prognostication question, the theory is that to get, and this is this is where the book started, our interview started, how to get young people impassioned. The theory is uh, more progressive policies will get young people impassioned. And if young people aren't impassioned, if young people are blasé about an election, they'll sit it out and the Democrats will lose. The counter theory is that, yeah, but Donald Trump. What do you, how do you think it's going to play out? I think this election shares a lot of, as a general election, and, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm taking this sort of assumption that Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee, and I think it's pretty clear Joe Biden's going to be the Democratic nominee, that in a rematch election, I think there's, there's a couple advantages for Biden. One is that he's now the incumbent president of the United States, and that gives people some reassurance about him, his ability to do the job. And I think the, you know, Trump's sort of career through the courts uh, since he's left office isn't going to win him many voters. Um, and so all, all those things, I think, go in Biden's column. It's a rematch. He won the last one. He's an incumbent now. Trump's had a lot of legal troubles. And I think a lot of what Trump has said is, to the extent people focus on it and take it seriously, is, you know, scary stuff about, you know, the president having absolute immunity and his lawyers say that means he could assassinate his his rivals and, he, you know, if you get a bad apple, there's nothing you can do about it. That kind of stuff is, I think, troubling to voters. So totting all that up in Biden's column, I think he's got a decent chance. But I think Trump, as we've talked about, has more command in the media, more ability to bring eyeballs to himself. And people are obviously still fascinated by him as a politician and a character in their lives. And he obviously has a very devoted following. It's not, you know, it's not a majority of the country, but it is a sizable percentage of the country and they're extremely devoted to him and adore him. Uh, So I think there's like 2020, I think it's going to be a close race. Uh, 
um, if I have to offer a prognostication, I, I'm, you know, I, I don't think it will be materially too different from what we saw in 2020, which was a real nail biter um, and one where either candidate could win until the very last day. Right. It all came down to the bamboo in the ballots and the Italian satellites. The name of the book <laughs> is <laughs> the name of the book is The Truce, Progressive Centrist and the Future of the Democratic Party, co-written with Hunter Walker. We've been speaking with Lupe B. Lupin. You should check out his Substack, Paw Prints, and he tweets or X's at NYC Southpaw. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate you and thank you for reading the book. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. I hope you liked some of it. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.